Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for August 2023. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Nori Vitharana. This month's featured article is on error traps in pediatric patient blood management in the perioperative period as part of the August edition of Pediatric Anesthesia. I'm joined by a highly accomplished team of authors, including lead author Dr. Guy May Tan from Children's Hospital Colorado and Professor of Clinical Practice in the Department of Anesthesiology School of Medicine. I'm also joined by Dr. Laura Downey, who is an Associate Professor at Emory University and a Pediatric Cardiac Anesthesiologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Kimo Murto from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute located in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and a University of Ottawa Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine. Thank you all for joining me today to talk about another excellent review article on our series on error traps, this time about error traps in paediatric patient blood management. Firstly, can you describe what is patient blood management and some of the principles that underpin it? Yes, thank you, Nero, for inviting us. Patient blood management has gone through many definitions. In 2022, an international multidisciplinary group of experts in PBM defined it with the emphasis on patient instead of transfusions. So this global definition involves putting patient front and center, using systematic evidence-based approaches to preserve patients' own blood while promoting patient safety and empowering patients to have a say in this process. For anesthesiologists though, the principles of PBM can be thought about in three pillars, pre-op, intra-op, and post-op interventions. This would include promoting blood health by managing anemia, maintaining hemostasis, preventing blood loss, and if there is blood loss, reusing it um, perioperatively. There are actually many error traps in PITS PBM. Our group chose topics based on what we feel has maximum impact and due, I'm afraid, to the total work constraints of the article, we could not include all the error traps. So we might just go systematically through the error traps. Can you describe the failure to recognize and treat preoperative anemia and how we may avoid that? Sure. This is Laura Downey. Um, so globally, anemia is a big problem and up to 40% of children actually do have anemia. Um, industrialized countries, this is about 25% of school-aged children. Where in some lower resource countries, the prevalence might be as high as 75%. The most common etiology of anemia is iron deficiency. And often, iron deficiency anemia goes under-recognized and under-treated by the medical community, especially in pediatric patients. And for those of us that work in anesthesia or the perioperative environment, anemia may occur in up to a third of our pediatric patients who present for surgery. So unfortunately, patients with preoperative anemia are at increased risk for both mortality and obviously needing blood transfusions intraoperatively. Um, and there are several retrospective studies showing almost a two-fold, 
fold mortality increase for patients who do present with preoperative anemia. Additionally, uh, preoperative anemia is an independent predictor for blood transfusions, um, which kind of makes sense, but that's also associated with its own complications and increased risks due to complications of blood transfusions. So what can we do? Well, the Society for the Advancement of Patient Blood Management and Pediatric and Neonatal Medicine recommends that we don't proceed with non-emergent major surgery until anemia is evaluated and treated. So that can often be quite difficult for us to cancel cases based on this. But so what can we do to try to prevent some of those day of cancellations? Since we talked about iron deficiency being the most common etiology for preoperative anemia, expert consensus guidelines actually recommend screening patients for anemia at least three to six weeks before major surgery. This will allow time for targeted therapeutic strategies such as iron supplementation, either orally or IV, and erythropoietin treatment to increase the patient's own hematopoietic capacity uh, for the surgical day. For patients in lower middle income countries, you may need to consider some additional etiologies and additional treatments because often this is related to poor nutrition or possibly parasitic intestinal worms. So they may need treatment for parasites and it may be important to focus on overall nutrition as well. But if we are able to improve the diagnosis and treatment of perioperative anemia, we'll go a long way towards reducing overall blood transfusions and improve the overall outcomes and safety of these patients. What role does informed consent and shared decision-making play in patient blood management? Okay, I'll try and answer that. Within the context of um, pediatric PBM, informed consent involves discussing the benefits and risks of blood component transfusion and alternate options available. So this entails shared decision-making, and the process is by combining best practice and evidence-based medicine together with consideration of patients' and families' personal values. And when done in a respectful and clear manner, this will improve patient and parental satisfaction too. Patients and parents, I, I believe, should be educated on periop blood conservation options and the potential for preoperative rate blood cell mass optimization. Each of these techniques has its benefits and risks, which has to be discussed in detail with parents. Ideally, this discussion should be done preoperatively with the operating room team, whether it's anesthesiologists or the surgeons. But this becomes even more important in the population who actually would like to decline blood transfusion. In this population, I think we should move this discussion at least one to two months ahead of surgical date, even in the anesthesia pre-op clinic, so that we can actually do some good in optimizing um, red blood cell preoperatively, which is the first step to pediatric PBM. Can you describe some of the specific intraoperative blood conservation techniques that we should be considering in our children? Yes, thank you for asking that question. Children, we have to say, is not small adults. 
So most techniques used in adults for PBM can and should be used in children, but with some modifications to tailor specifically to them. For example, antifibrinolytics should be used in pediatric surgeries that is expected to have a moderate amount of blood loss. The trap in using antifibrinolytics in kids is that it is not a standard dose like you see in the adult literature. For example, for trinexamic acid, the dose is based on pharmacokinetics and weight. So if we talk about TXA, we should load TXA with about 10 to 30 milligrams per kilo and continue an infusion when needed at 5 to 10 milligrams per kilo per hour. As for the other intraoperative conservation techniques like cell salvage and acute normal volemic hemodilution, we have to do this in a very meticulous way because children have a much smaller blood volume than adults. And the most important thing about using both this technique, cell saver and ANH, is to optimize red blood cells' uh, mass upfront. So for example, when we do ANH in the adult world, we take out you know, a fixed almost like a fixed volume of blood, 350 to 400 mils into a pre-made blood collection system. But if you do this in kids, you actually have to calculate and work backwards from their, their um, allowable blood loss. And not only that, you have to manipulate somehow the anticoagulants that comes in that pre-made collection bag. You would have to reduce it based on the amount of blood you can actually draw out of the patient. And then when we talk about cell salvage, the most important thing about cell salvage is the collection of the blood that comes out of the patient. So draping of the surgical draping that's done by the surgeons have to be really meticulous, making sure we suction every drop of blood that we can capture that comes out of the patient and use you know, updated advanced technology in term, um, for cell salvaging machines. What about the failure to recognize and treat life-threatening hemorrhage in children? Yeah, the um, recent UK serious hazards of transfusion or shot data identified delayed recognition of blood loss and failure to initiate a massive hemorrhage protocol or MHP along with TACO accounted for about three quarters of transfusion related deaths in children. And, and don't forget for MHP activations, 50% occur in trauma, but folks seem to forget that the other half is split between the OR and medically complex patients, many of which are being treated in the intensive care unit. So different clinical environments. So when you look at first failure to recognize massive hemorrhage in children, it's related to size and anatomy outlined in our figure two and physiology in table three. Issues of size are due to essentially blood loss assessment. I always hear Laura Downey talking about a four kilogram infant has a, a blood volume equivalent to a can of Coke. So that's hard to assess uh, the degree of blood loss in a clinical setting. And anatomical issues is issues of significant occult bleeding into the head of a neonate who has open cranial sutures allowing for this to happen or bleeding from the vascular skull that can be very deceiving as well as unrecognized intra-abdominal bleeding being one of the leading causes of death in pediatric trauma. When you look at unique physiology as per table three, cardiovascular is, is a highlight. 
kids have a robust and resilient physiologic reserve, and, uh, and it seems to be due to autonomic and neurohormonal responses to preserve their brain and heart function, which really can delay recognition of class three decompensated shock, which may just manifest with tachycardia and a low normal systolic blood pressure associated with some confusion, lethargy, a prolonged capillary blanch tests, and a dull response to an IV insertion. The other thing is thinking of blood as an organ that's composed of blood cells, plasma components, and the vascular endothelium, and it is prone to failure, uh, which means we're talking low tissue oxygen delivery, endotheliopathy, platelet dysfunction, and coagulopathy during hemorrhagic shock. And we are seeing increasing utilization of blood failure laboratory values, such as lactate-based deficit and INR, to not only inform shock class diagnosis, but also to provide prognostication, therapeutic targets, and MHP activation, which brings the issues uh, related to size, anatomy, and physiology that contribute to treatment failure in the massively bleeding child. Issues related to size is that everything is smaller in children, making vascular access more difficult, and you really should have a low threshold to utilize intraosseous access early. And ease to ad uh, rapidly administer large volumes of blood components, crystalloids, subjects children to all sorts of complications, including tackle, hemodilution, dilutional coagulopathy, hyperkalemia in older units, and hypocalcemia. And we have provided readers with blood component product dosing guidelines in Table 2 to avoid some of these issues. The key anatomical and I would say physiological issue contributing to treatment failure in the massively bleeding child is hypothermia, which we're all familiar with, but we need to appreciate that a core temperature less than 36 degrees Celsius or 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit in a trauma setting is associated with a three-fold increase in bleeding diatheses and about a 2.5-fold increase in in-hospital mortality. So it's, it's no surprise that temperature is included in the lethal triad of massive hemorrhage along with acidosis and coagulopathy. And speaking of coagulopathy, early depletion of fibrinogen is increasingly recognized as an issue regardless of the clinical setting and should be addressed early in your management algorithm. So the UK SHOT report advocates for a massive hemorrhage protocol to be in place to mitigate against errors related to delayed recognition of massive hemorrhage as well as associated inappropriate treatment. What are some of the key components of a massive hemorrhage protocol in children? Well, Table 4 outlines the seven components of pediatric MHP the reader should consider implementing for their own hospital-specific algorithm. Now, we remind the reader that an MHP goes beyond a massive transfusion protocol, or an MTP, that simply ensures blood components or products arrive at the bedside and are administered based on some ratio or uh, a therapeutic threshold. An MHP, however, is about total care of the patient, accounting for initiation of damage control resuscitation and stopping the bleeding, termination of treatment, appropriate monitoring and dosing of blood components, products, and drugs, and anticipating and mitigating against uh, common complications. So when you think about that as a whole, key components are as follows. First of all, the trigger. Currently, there's no consensus for pediatric activation criteria in any setting, let alone validated criteria specific to trauma. Part of the issue is there's no pediatric definition for massive hemorrhage, although like adult data, a critical administration threshold 
or resuscitation intensity of blood components is being adopted as a surrogate for massive hemorrhage as it is predictive of mortality and it's easily measured and actionable. Typically in children, we are now seeing 40 mils per kilo of RBCs or combined components transfused over four to six hours as a surrogate measure of massive hemorrhage, and perhaps it's useful for MHP activation. Reference 40 by Phyllis et al. provides evidence for other factors to consider for MHP activating, including demographics like penetrating injury and evidence for lab-based failure, uh, blood failure and ultrasound-based intra-abdominal bleeding combined with pediatric-specific hemodynamics. The bottom line for triggers, know your hospital's MHP activation criteria and apply it in all clinical settings, even though that may be imperfect. From a team communication perspective, we highly encourage critical lab results being re relayed directly to the team leader and develop a standardized handover tool to relay MH or massive hemorrhage-specific information. We've already mentioned the importance of TXA and temperature management. So when we look at lab testing, it should include measures of glucose as children are susceptible to hyper and hypoglycemia, the latter being devastating in the presence of traumatic brain injury. And children, especially infants and neonates are susceptible to RBC associated hyperkalemia and associated cardiac arrest due to their smaller blood volume in the presence of acidosis hypovolemia and associated hypocalcemia secondary to blood component induced citrate toxicity. When you look at transfusion thresholds, more or less like adolescents or adults, except for perhaps neonates and those with underlying congenital heart disease, but please don't forget that dosing must be weight-based to avoid complications, including TACO. And finally, we strongly encourage continuous quality improvement initiatives, which are critical to improve quality measures related to the system, a measure of flow, the process, a measure of compliance, and outcome, a measure of performance. Poor clinician compliance with MHPs adversely affects patient outcomes. Unfortunately, the reader should know there is no international consensus on MHP quality metrics to be monitored in adults, let alone children. What about when we go the other way and we unnecessarily transfuse or over-transfuse our patients? So as Dr. Murta was just discussing, red blood cell transfusions and other products are really important, whether you're treating anemia, ongoing bleeding, or you need to increase the oxygen carrying capacity for these children. However, as we've also talked about, there are definitely inherent risks with blood transfusions and their associated complications and increased risk of mortality. So we have to be thoughtful about how we are transfusing. And for many years, physicians in the U.S. were taught that a standard red blood cell transfusion in adults was two units. And in the pediatric world, a lot of times uh, physicians will finish a unit of blood because it's there and the patient's already been exposed. Or they'll tank up a patient and give them a little bit of extra red blood cells uh, to give that ICU a cushion for either further bleeding or future blood drops. Unfortunately, more and more data is coming out that it's not just the number of units that patients are exposed to, but it's actually the volume of red cells transfused that's directly associated with mortality. And this has been shown in adults, both in large and very large volume transfusions. And there are several pediatric studies that have demonstrated patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery who receive red blood cell transfusions of more than 40 mLs per 
kilo actually have a higher risk of mortality and increased incidence of postoperative infection when um, compared to patients who receive less red cells. Uh, so it's really important for pediatric anesthesiologists to really recognize that risk of unnecessary transfusions or even over-transfusions. So kind of how do we get to an appropriate transfusion? The Choosing Wisely campaign that came out a few years ago in the adult world was had the tagline, don't transfuse more units of blood than absolutely necessary, or why transfuse two units when only one will do, especially in a very stable, hemodynamically stable, non-bleeding patient. Unfortunately, it's a little hard to have that exact tagline in pediatrics because we have differences in weight and blood volume of pediatric patients, and uh, they have different underlying uh, diseases that may require higher hematocrits. Um, so our recommendations aren't as clear cut. However, as we'll discuss in a little bit, there are some taxi guidelines that have recommended hemoglobin thresholds uh, for different categories of patients. Uh, so it's very important when we are considering a blood transfusion for these patients to remember that the goal of transfusion is actually to relieve the symptom of anemia or treat whatever the problem is, is not necessarily to restore hemoglobin levels to what we would consider normal. Um, so when doing that, it is important to, as Dr. Tan uh, was talking about, calculate your allowable blood loss in these patients. And then you can actually use equations to also figure out how many mLs of red blood cells you should transfuse to get to your ideal hematocrit or targeted hematocrit. What do you see on the horizon for pediatric patient blood management? So the, the taxi outlines actually outline a conservative red blood cell transfusion strategy that identifies different hemoglobin thresholds for subsets of critically ill children. However, despite increasing support for restrictive transfusion strategies in these in our pediatric patients, international, international expert consensus guidelines agree that transfusions really shouldn't be dictated by just a hemoglobin concentration alone, but really should consider the child's underlying physiologic condition and anemia-related signs and symptoms. In fact, a lot of PBM management experts have called for something called goal-directed individualized hemoglobin management and that really, instead of focusing on a single hemoglobin threshold number, focuses on a variety of different other physiologic parameters. Um, and it, the goal is really to try to come up with a decision-making algorithm that allows physicians to identify specific individuals who permissive anemia might be safe or those who actually need a blood transfusion um, if they are demonstrating symptoms or have physiologic parameters that are concerning. Uh, so one model that we have proposed in, our, uh, in one of our papers was talking about looking at oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, and organ perfusion, and using a variety of different things to measure these to determine if a patient needs a red blood cell transfusion. Um, Different things might include looking at serial continuous measurements of lactate, hemoglobin levels, base deficit, 
the pH. We'd also look at patient hemodynamics, heart rate, blood pressure, um, and then using some additional novel technologies that there's been more and more research coming out. One of the things that's been used more and more is cerebral and somatic dynamic near-infrared spectroscopy. And this may allow us to have a better sense of oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, as well as end-organ end perfusion, and allow us to better direct whether we should be giving red blood cell transfusions or if the patient is stable enough to not need these. But I think overall, we will eventually have to come up with some sort of algorithm that incorporates multiple of these parameters to help us come up with this individualized goal-directed transfusion strategy. What are some of the key take-home messages about pediatric patient blood management that you'd like our listeners to consider incorporating into their practice? Okay, well, take-home messages are, are summarized in Table 5. As per reference number two, PBM is defined as a multidisciplinary evidence-based approach to manage and preserve the patient's own blood towards improving patient outcomes in both medical and surgical settings while promoting patient empowerment and safety. That's a sort of a, an overriding umbrella that you know, we are under when we think of uh, PBM. There is an emphasis on the critical role of informed choice, a unique aspect in pediatrics where the child is encouraged to be included in the decision-making to provide assent, being a minor or consent, a mature minor or a young adult. To this point, we remind raters that as anesthesiologists, we are positioned to facilitate informed consent, which includes disclosure of information regarding the benefits and risks of transfusions, as we've discussed, as well as alternatives to transfusions, which we as clinicians can incorporate into our own practice and include some of the following. One, preoperatively screen for and treat anemia, particularly in the setting of major elective cases, which should be postponed for a minimum of three to four weeks to allow time to optimize the anemia using EPO and iron or whatever because anemia is associated with post-operative morbidity and mortality. Two, intraoperatively, the efficacy and safety of TXA has been established and is recommended for trauma in all major blood loss surgeries, although it is considered off-label use in children. Maintenance doses, though, should be higher than the two milligrams per kilo per hour that's commonly reported in the literature, as we've outlined. Cell salvage techniques should be considered in children weighing greater than 10 kilograms and anticipated blood loss being greater than 8 mils per kilo. And admittedly, the efficacy of acute normal volemic hemodilution has yet to be really established. But considering the increasing interest in whole blood administration, I can see it making a comeback because essentially that's what we're doing. The reader should adapt the seven T's we provide for their own hospital-specific MHP, and it should account for differences in body size, anatomy, and physiology. We know their hemodynamic resilience can delay recognition of class three shock in a trauma setting, and therefore your hospital's activation criteria should utilize additional factors, including evidence of blood failure and a critical administration threshold of co components, et cetera. The bottom line is know your hospital's MHP activation criteria. And finally, regarding perioperative transfusion of red blood cells, plasma, and platelets, we are advocating for a restrictive transfusion approach that incorporates clinical context, 
physiologic and laboratory criteria, and we discourage transfusion to achieve a normal number. This is in keeping with the 2018 taxi, uh, taxi consensus recommendations for RBCs, that's reference number 43, and the more recent 2022 taxi cab consensus recommendations for plasma and platelet transfusions in children by Nellis et al., published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. We do advocate for weight-based dosing of blood components and products because not only is overtransfusion unnecessary, it may be lethal. And to sum up our perspective, we ask the reader, and I, and I quote, why transfuse one when none will do? Great. This is a delightful article to read with a really structured and systematic approach to discussing pediatric blood management with some really helpful summary tables and figures. I'd encourage all of our listeners to have a read of the article. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Tan, Dr. Downey, and Dr. Murto, and to the rest of your team for all their hard work on publishing this excellent review article. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for August 2023. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast as well. Until then, cheers.